Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. When we first launched the second campaign, I mean, I think we made like $60,000 in a day and a half. Like it was immediately the, the people who were there the first time who were excited, they immediately jumped back in. Hey, my name is Felix. I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week, we learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn what happens when you don't reach your Kickstarter funding goal, how to relaunch a Kickstarter campaign after an unsuccessful campaign, and the difference between working with reviewers versus bloggers. Today, I'm joined by Jen and Brett Epstein from SideClick. Streamline your streaming experience with SideClick, a universal remote attachment for your streaming device. And we're starting in 2015 and based out of Jupiter, Florida. Welcome, Jen and Brett. Thanks, Felix. We're really excited to uh, be on with you today. Yeah, thanks for having us. For sure. Okay, so uh, tell us a bit more about this product, the SideClick remote that you guys sell. Sure. Um, well, our sort of idea for this product started um, very just organically because uh, we as a family were looking to sort of save some costs. Um, and one of the ways that we did that was um, by uh, becoming what's known, we know now as a term called cord cutting. So mm-hmm. we cut ties with our cable company. And um, we started off with our cord cutting journey and we got ourselves a Roku. And I wasn't, you know, familiar at all with streaming devices, and I don't think Brett had much fam- familiarity with it. But he uh, he sort of did some research and got us a Roku, and we were sort of off on our uh, streaming way. And uh, he had he sort of came up with this idea just from our own use of our own Roku. We found that we really loved it, and it had this handy dandy little slick remote. But we were always having to kind of search for the other remote to turn on and off the TV or to search for another remote to, um, you know, control the volume. And I think Brett had an idea that if he had some a slim remote that could literally click to the side and attach somehow to the remote, it would be a solution that, you know, he himself wanted. And, um, you know, at first I was kind of like, oh, know you know sure honey it's a good idea and then the more I started using the Roku and found that you know I would turn it on and the volume would be blasting and I'd have to find the other remote or our girls would be having problems you know you know juggling the multiple remotes I kind of got on board I was like you know I think this actually is a really good idea Um, yeah for for those of you who aren't interested or aren't familiar with the streaming remotes almost all of them like the big players fire Amazon fire tv Roku, Apple TV, they all have really small remotes to control the streaming devices, but they're usually Wi-Fi or Bluetooth, um, and none of them uh, control like the basic TV function. So you can't turn on the TV, you can't control the volume, the input. A lot of cord cutters use like a antenna to get their local HD channels. Um, you only have a couple channels, so you just needed channel up and down. So it was really just the lack of those basic buttons, um, and I found myself having to surf with two remotes, one in each hand. 
Uh, yeah, yeah this so. is this is really a, a great idea because I don't have I, I don't have too much experience with a lot of these devices, but the ones that I have used, they they you're you're right. It's 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 funny that they make it so difficult to turn on and off the the TV, which is like the very first step you have to take before you can use the actual device. So when you are coming with this idea, do you do either of you have experience in developing products like this? Because this looks like a very slick product. Yeah, I, yeah. I have a mechanical engineering background. Um, so, uh, my day job actually now I work on designing jet engines, but, um, I used to do some product development, like consumer product development. Um, I wasn't really into it. And for the, for the most part, most of my jobs ended with us delivering like a prototype to a customer. Um, but I've always been kind of an aspiring inventor and kept a journal, um, and my journal, I never really did much with. I think Kickstarter kind of changed that because it, it made um, that process more accessible to inventors who maybe don't have the funding to start a product from scratch. Um, but <clears throat> this one wasn't in my journal. This was yeah. basically one that I came up with the idea. Um, like Jen said, she kind of got it. Uh, but I have a 3D printer, a really basic small 3D printer. And I printed just a shell of what I thought would work. Um, and, and it had no buttons, no anything. I just kind of clipped it on and showed it to Jan. And she's like, yeah. She's like, I get it. Yeah. Like, and, this I, could, and, this I actually, work. and I have sort of a more of a generalized business background and, um, you know, have spent some time just kind of in business, um, the administration side of business, a little bit of marketing. And I think what really got me excited about it was the fact that I did some research on the demand and sales of the streaming devices themselves. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they are really, they were just exploding, you know, like millions and millions of units were being sold um, for Roku and Apple TV and Amazon Fire TV. So the fact that we were a complimentary product for something that was just exploding in the marketplace was really exciting to me because I felt like, you know, you're already so ahead of the game. Marketing is such a challenge to introduce a product to someone, but it, you know, it's kind of like basic economics when it's a complementary product to something that's already just, you know, launching into space. It's, it's, it was very exciting to me because I felt like it was a product that was a solution, which is the best kind, but it's mm -hmm. also attached to something that's already just has so much momentum in the market. So that was kind of exciting for me. Yeah, this is a, a very important topic that I hear a lot from entrepreneurs that are successful, which is about timing, about catching that wave like you're talking about and riding it as it's rising. You want to be able to be a part of something that's already becoming popular. You don't want to be the ones that are creating the market. You want to be part of a market that's already growing. So when you were doing this kind of research to understand or to 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 and then realize that there was a growing demand for in this industry did you use any particular like tools or or services or websites that were helpful in determining all of this yeah you know a lot of it is really just kind of googling demand um, and seeing you know googling terms like what are the sales statistics of the streaming devices and you can find a lot of specific niche reports from professional marketing um, companies. I think one is called like Parks. Um, and, you know, they, they have an entire just study that shows how the streaming uh, market is selling and they, you know, rank the, the, the streaming devices sales um, and, and, you know, 
they show you a trajectory of, of which devices are going to be taking over market share. So there is so much just free information out there, and it's from very credible um, marketing firms, and they kind of give you a taste of the report, which gives you, in our case, pretty much all the information we needed. And then if you need, you know, the details and the nitty gritty of the report, you can, you know, pay for them. In some instances, they're very expensive, but we found that we were able to get um, pretty much all the the you know information that we needed just from you know basic Google searches on how products were selling. You know, some and in some cases companies it's just public knowledge and public records you know they're letting you know how much they're selling like amazon for instance is a little bit more secretive as to how many devices exactly they were selling but um you know brett and i another way that we would research it which was kind of exciting is that we would walk into like best buy for instance and we would look at the streaming shelves and i mean there were literally barrels of streaming devices not only were they on the shelves but literally there would be barrels of them with hundreds of devices in them and we would talk to the sales associates and say how are they selling and they'd say well you know look at the barrels <laughs> there we are selling them by the barrel and you know we would look at the shelves to say you know can we see do we think that we could envision a, a place for um, you know, side click here. Are there any other accessories that um, are in our space? And there really wasn't. And so that's another way that we kind of got excited is that, you know, the, the closest thing to accessories for the streaming devices would basically be like Hulu or Netflix subscription cards that would be mm -hmm. hanging on the shelf. And so it was, you know, we could see that, that there could potentially be a place for us in these big box stores. And, and so, you know, that was kind of how we, we uh, tested the waters to see if we think that we would fit in there. Yeah, I like how you, you actually went into the store and tried to envision, could this be a product that a store like this would carry or the kind of customers are shopping at this, these stores, could they buy a product like this? Now, Brett, you mentioned that you have this journal that you write in where you have lots of product ideas that you jot down. What, what made you decide that this was the one that you pursued, this was the one that you would 3D print and create a, a very early prototype to, to, to show around? I think this one was uh, most relevant to a uh, rising market. <clears throat> it was also something that a lot of my ideas I, I thought would be fun, but there was no no urgency to them. Um, they 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 weren't really solving big problems. So when this one came out, um, I realized that this one kind of had a, a a better purpose. This one this one was something I wanted for myself. So I, I realized I wanted to make one to see if I could kind of pull it off just in the proto as a prototype. And if I could pull it off, I mean, I'm a pretty normal techie user. Uh, we just thought that other people would want it. So it, it, was, it was one of those ones where I think like Jen mentioned earlier, we just didn't see any other competitive products. And, um, and I, I used to, back to what Jen was saying about Best Buy, I used to actually work at Best Buy through college. And and they were always kind of pushing accessories. Mm. So Best Buy was always kind of like the, that was like our holy grail of retail because I knew they'd want to push accessories toward this product, you know, toward a, toward a, a growing market that there weren't really any accessories for. They used to push like HDMI cables, but pretty much everyone has HDMI cables now. So I wanted this. I knew that if I saw it on the market, I'd buy it. So I kind of just had to jump on it before someone else did. That's always the drive uh, for everything in in my journal is like, 
it doesn't have to be now, but if somebody else does it before me, I'm going to be really upset. So, mm. so this one was the one that I, I just didn't want to wait any longer. Makes sense. Now, you mentioned that these uh, big box retailers like Best Buy push accessories and the fact that this was a product that I guess worked alongside an accessory or it could be considered an accessory itself. What what made you, what, what's I guess attractive about being in business with selling a product like this, like an accessory? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure if it is that. I mean, I, I was always a little worried with with um, having a product that had a niche market. I was always worried that we were limiting the type of people I could we mm-hmm. could sell to. Um, but I think what we found is that the niche market is really big uh, and growing. So uh, it it made m- marketing a little easier to focus. Um, it I, I think uh, yeah. have have. <laughs> I, I think, too, kind of what I was thinking that comes to mind, too, is that, like, I think we sort of even as we would go further down the road and in, in developing the product, we sort of realized that what we thought was niche was was even was growing larger and larger. And kind of what I mean by that is at first we thought like we were sort of targeting and we kept hearing the word cord cutting right like mm-hmm. and you know we didn't know how many people were really going to be adopting that sort of cord cutting um, lifestyle. And, and what we came to find out is that even if you aren't a cord cutter and you still subscribe to cable, um, many millions of people who still have cable and let's say they have a smart TV where they can still access their, um, apps through their smart TV still are going out and choosing to buy one of these streaming devices Mm -hmm. just because, you know, either it's for, you know, a separate TV and many people have more than one in their house. So it just sort of seemed like it was the demand for these actual streaming devices was just growing and growing and growing. And so there's the, just the, the excitement to see that, you know, you could be um, an accessory for something and, 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 and really solve a problem, you know, like it, it, it's really not something that is obviously it's a luxury of some sort. You couldn't just reach over and get another remote. But when you, ha- you know, we have two small kids, for instance, and, you know, having this product on our streaming remote, the SideClick, really, truly makes the TV watching experience easier for us as parents. It makes it easier for them. So it was kind of, it was very exciting just to think that we had a problem or we had a product that was, uh, you know, attached to something that was so big, but was truly something that was a problem solver. I think that's kind of what kept us, you know, going and it felt, we felt like kind of we were snowballing in a good direction. Mm, makes sense. Uh, so I think one of you mentioned that by focusing on a niche, even though that it was a very fast growing niche, makes the marketing a lot easier. Can you say more about this? Yeah, I, I think, well, it, it, I think it really started with our first Kickstarter campaign. Um, we launched Kickstarter. We took a long time to get ready to launch Kickstarter. I think I started developing the product in, uh, it was either January or February of, uh, 2015. We launched our Kickstarter campaign in April. And, uh, and what we did is we launched and then thought we'd tackle the initial, and and now I'm talking about marketing more and getting the word out for our Kickstarter campaign. Um, immediately we started targeting like all of the media who were writing about cord cutting and, um, who were reviewing these devices. So we started looking for all of the media contacts that we could find. And we spent, 
out of a 30 or 40 day campaign that we had, I mean, we spent every single day of it for several hours finding new uh, contacts, uh, writing writers, our, 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 yeah, writers, bloggers, whoever it was, and, and targeting those people and telling them about our product. So that was the start of our marketing campaign. Gotcha. So you were able to identify what these people identify themselves as and look for people that were writing towards that, that audience to reach out to? That's right. That's exactly right. So there was a lot of momentum in, in, uh, in blogs and in big um, publications like CNET and you know TechCrunch. Everyone was writing and reviewing these streaming devices and talking about... So there was sort of like the, the reviewers who were reviewing the gadgets themselves um, who would be interested in it in more of like a hardware aspect of how it was working with the streaming device. There was also a segment of the media that was just discussing sort of the cord cutting movement who could also be interested in our product because we, you know, are showing how there's more, you know, commerce coming, you know, that's sprouting from this cord cutting movement. Um, and then there was, you know, a third sort of population of writers that are just kind of interested in, um, you know, Kickstarter projects and what's new there. So we sort of built this really robust list just from searching people and what they were covering. And, and so if, if we've sort of learned that if they're already talking about something in the industry, they're much more likely to talk about your product. And, you know, these kind of what I've learned too is, you know, these writers and these bloggers, um, you know, they, they're looking for content to, um, you know, write about, obviously. And so if you can make a connection with them by saying, you know, hey, I really enjoyed your review of the Roku 2 and let me show you how our product attaches to it. And, you know, so there, it, it was kind of easy to grab their attention by knowing that we were already in their wheelhouse. Mm. So you mentioned three, these three pretty distinct groups of people. You have the, the tech kind of hardware reviewers. You have people that are just talking in general about cord cutting. And then you have the people that are covering Kickstarter that you reached out to to, to, to um, help promote your Kickstarter campaign. Now, out of these, these three, can you talk a little bit about maybe the benefits or the advantages of focusing on one of the three? I guess what are the kind of pros, not necessarily the cons, but what are the pros of focusing on reviewers versus people just talking generally about the space versus people talking about Kickstarter? Did you, did you notice any differences in, in the, I guess, the results of working with them? Um, yeah, we, uh, this would probably be a good opportunity to talk. To, so for, you know, we, we sort of were looking at, um, you know, the analytics that we could see that were coming in from who was referring the most people to our Kickstarter campaign. And, um, two of the referrers who were referring a lot of traffic to us were these little niche websites. One was called cord cutters news. And the other was called um, AFTVnews.com. And so these are just two separate um, bloggers, basically, that have turned um, their website into an entire space for cord cutting information. So Cord Cutters News is um, our friend Luke Boma, who we've become friendly with. And he is just, his life is cord cutting. He has made himself the... Um, you know, know all in this industry. And so, you know, by him reporting on us, you know, we, we've sort of, you know, connected like and formed a great partnership because he keeps us um, up to date in cord cutting, you know, news and everything affecting our industry. And then, you know, his audience of cord cutters 
um, was a great testing ground for us. And, you know, we got a lot of Kickstarter backers that maybe normally would not have known about us, but they did specifically, you know, just because they were interested in, in the content that he was, he was providing. And the same kind of goes for the other website, which was called AFTV News. It was a website kind of solely dedicated to uh, Amazon Fire TV enthusiasts. So, um, you know, just by kind of really taking the time to connect with those content providers and, um, you know, talking with them and then kind of under getting, taking the opportunity to get to know who their viewer is and the types of things that they wanted, I think we were able to gain a lot of insight into the type of customer that could potentially be a side click customer. Mm, makes sense. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. So when before we get into the Kickstarter stuff, I want to talk a little bit about the early prototypes. So, uh, Brett, you mentioned that you created this prototype using a a three D printer. And I think this is a, a very uh, it, it's a very useful avenue for a lot of people that want to create a hardware product that want to prototype a product that doesn't exist yet, but doesn't have a lot of the funds to you know, go through a manufacturer, or maybe just want something very early on. Talk to us about this process. How did you, what kind of 3D printer are you using? What kind of software are you using? How do you even begin going down the route of creating a prototype with a 3D printer? Well, so I, I've been through this um, through, my, through my work, through my day job. I've been through this in the past. However, <clears throat> most of the products I did were prior to uh, available 3D printers or, or general use 3D printers. They were all commercial, larger $10,000 machines. So I used to pay, um, I used to pay more for a single prototype part than I did for my entire 3D printer. Um, my 3D printer is a, uh, a printer bot. It's, it's called a simple metal. It actually was a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, however, I purchased it after the company had launched uh, after Kickstarter, after the Kickstarter campaign. Um, <clears throat> so I basically, uh, I, I designed all the parts uh, myself, uh, just using 3D modeling software. I printed them on my, I, I did a lot of trial, um, trial prints because all of the remote controls that I attached to have very unique shapes. Um, some that are harder to grab than other ones, you know, very, uh, rounded, uh, glossy surfaces are hard to get a good, a good snap onto. Um, so I did a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of trial runs where I just printed out, you know, maybe like the border and tried to slide it over and kept tweaking it until I had a pretty good fit. And then I'd work my models a little more. Um, and, and I was just printing shells at the time, clips and shells, um, of, of remotes. And at the same time, I had started to buy a, um, a plethora of remote controls off of eBay and Amazon um, to use as as research. Um, I, I kind of knew that I wanted one of the style universal remotes where you just point them head to head and they and they teach each other uh, instead of the kind where you had to pull out a, a code list with all the manufacturers and, and you know a thousand codes for different um, models. So. I, at the same time I'm doing these prints on the shells, I'm looking for off-the-shelf uh, uh, kind of remote controls that are available that are already kind of small in form. Um, I had the mechanical and the design background, but I did not have the electrical background. Uh, so, so the whole time, and then and I think when I got one that I thought was pretty good, I actually printed a prototype that looked kind of large and bulky, but I took the guts out of a remote control and kind of put them inside, so I had a working prototype. 
um, that I used just to kind of play around with and see how it worked and see how I liked it. So <clears throat> through that, I kind of just kept on refining the process uh, and um, ended up with, <clears throat> you know, and I, I know we were about to get into the Kickstarter campaign, but it's, it's kind of interesting when we talk about that. I, I came up with a whole line of prototypes, and then after our first Kickstarter campaign, we ended up kind of completely changing the design, which, mm. which I could talk about later. Um, so through this, I think the, the 3D printer was relatively new to me at the time as well. I didn't buy it for this project. I had bought it just prior to, to kind of tinker with. Um, so I was still kind of learning the machines, the ins and outs of the machine. Um, using you know the standard software that comes with it, um, I, mm-hmm. I can't remember. I think it's uh, Slicer is one of them, and I mean, it's it's all it's all kind of freeware that 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 you use to drive these. Mm-hmm. And um, and I printed. I, I have. I still can't let them go. I have boxes and boxes of prototypes just because <laughs> they have some sort of like sentimental value to me. Yeah, some kind of evolution of your product development. I think I would keep them too if I was you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you you had these prototypes made. Now, how much did you have, I guess, ready by the time that you guys decided to launch that very first Kickstarter? Did you already have a, a working prototype? I had a working prototype that was not visually appealing. Uh, and then I had, for the first campaign, I had four prototypes that I had basically made that were shells they had no guts um and i had printed them and um (laughs) because i'm better at working with my hands than i am with photoshop at least back then um i actually spent time using like bondo like you know they use for for body filler for cars Mm -hmm. and i was wet sanding them and spraying them and i ended up with if you look in the first kickstarter campaign those are all just kind of hand-built prototypes that have a skeleton of a 3d printed part um, so, and then I had one that we didn't even show in the campaign that was a working prototype. Mm, cool. Okay. Yeah. So we've been talking about the first campaign. When we say the first campaign, what happened was that you guys launched two campaigns for the same product, right? The first one had a goal of $150,000. And yeah, talk to us about what happened. Like what happened between, between, I guess the first campaign and then the, the second campaign, which I think launched very quickly after. Yeah. So the first campaign, uh, which we did launch in April, um, I had four models, and we had a uh, we had a model for the Roku at the time, uh, the Amazon Fire TV uh, player, the Amazon Fire TV stick, and the Apple uh, Generation Three, which is the little silver slim uh, metal remote that Apple used to make. And I had a I had a dedicated remote control and design for each of those units. Um, we had asked for one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Because of what I told you earlier, we kind of started doing our marketing day one of the campaign, and it lasted throughout. We kind of had a slow increase of backers. You know, it didn't start off very quick. Um, it kind of rolled in. Uh, we were picked up by Uncrate, which is you know, uh, which which ended up being one of our largest funding days of our of our campaign. Um, I think they were one of our bigger. We had CNET articles, Gizmodo, and Gadget. All of the they, they were great and very successful. But um, but Uncrate, I think, was our biggest one. I think they have some some loyal backers. Uh, regardless of all of the 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 media that we got, we still never reached our goal of one hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. However, I see that in the long run as a blessing because during our campaign, Roku launched a line of remotes, a line of devices, a brand new line of devices, and introduced uh, 
two new remote controls. So now so I'm did thinking the Apple TV. Oh, I'm sorry. So did the Apple TV. I'm not sure if they had launched yet, but they had um, announced that they were going to launch a new mm-hmm. one. So meanwhile, my my uh, cost predictions for all of my tooling and my plastic parts now just almost doubled. Uh, and we already didn't hit our goal of our first one. So I kind of went back to the drawing board and I, and I started thinking about how I could reduce the cost of my tooling and make a more simple design. Um, so what I came up with was a, a remote control portion. Our universal remote control portion is really just the, it's a column of eight buttons and it's a slim remote control that you can use just by holding it in your hand. It doesn't need to be attached to the, you know, streaming, it has its own batteries, its own power, everything. Um, and then what I came up with, which is really unique to our system, is an interchangeable clip system. So every one of our remotes now, every one of our models uses the same master remote or the same same design of the remote. And we just, you could slide off a clip and then replace it with another clip. So now mm-hmm. I just cut my tooling costs down um, significantly. And we also kind of lined ourselves up to to turn around new models quicker because there's less mm. less development um, that's necessary. So Definitely see the blessing and the curse with that because now you had the opportunity to not only create the, a model that works for these new models of remotes that are coming out, but then of course create something much more universal for for application for for future applications of, of this technology. And the blessing, and, and the blessing was just because I felt like if we did get funded that first time, I would have felt obligated to deliver the product that mm-hmm. I originally had mm-hmm. had proposed, and and it would have ended up costing us a lot more. Gotcha. So now, what happens when you don't reach your? Well, we'll kind of talk about. It. So you had to go one hundred fifty thousand dollars, still raise a ton of money. Uh, you know, I guess on paper for one hundred and nine thousand dollars. What happens mm-hmm. when you don't reach your Kickstarter funding goal? Does like nothing happen? Nothing happens. Yeah, um, backers nothing get their happens. money back. It's, it just, it just, everything stops. Backers get their money back. Um, well, they're never no charged. Co- is actually how it works. They don't get That's charged yeah. until it's funded. Gotcha. So, the, what did you guys do? Because you re, you relaunched the campaign pretty much immediately after that that first Kickstarter uh, ended. Was that is that correct? It felt like a lifetime because it was <laughs> it was it was three months. But meanwhile, we had just kind of put ourselves out there. Um, and just, you know, we, well, I was going to say like, you know, we, Brett was immediately kind of, you know, excited and, and we sort of knew we had a better idea. So we were working really hard to kind of redo our campaign in order to launch. But the really nice thing that we experienced from the first campaign, especially when we failed is that we had a very vocal, loud, um, you know, cheering section of backers that were really disappointed that we failed they, they because they wanted the product. So we sort of constantly kept communicating with these backers and we knew, we felt very confident that if we were to relaunch and we can get, we could get our costs down, that we felt confident that we could close to match the enthusiasm of, of, you know, that we received, which was, you know, uh, we did a good job. We had, you know, over 2000, you know, backers and over a hundred thousand dollars. So we knew that those, we could count on, um, the support of many of those backers the first time that they would kind of continue with us to the second campaign, which did in fact happen. So that was kind of, you know, a great way to sort of, they were excited, they wanted the product, and, and they kept with us while we sort of figured out, you know, our developmental stuff. 
Yeah, so use the, the second campaign that was launched basically raised the exact same amount of money, but this time you set a lower goal of $80,000, ended up raising pretty much 109000 almost exactly the same amount that you raised last time from another 2,651 backers this time. So was it much easier to raise this uh, or hit this goal the second time around? Like, Were you able to contact the people that – uh, funded you or or attempted to fund you in that first campaign? Yeah, we 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 recontacted everyone, and it was easier for us because yeah. we had already established those contacts. <clears throat> However, yeah, lose, I think we made like sixty thousand. Yeah, but I think you know, but when we first, but we did lose some momentum. However, the when we first launched the second campaign, I mean, I think we made like sixty thousand dollars in a day and a half. Like it was immediately mm-hmm. the the people who were there the first time who were excited, they immediately jumped back in. So it was like it was it really helped to kind of feed our excitement because we were literally just watching the numbers climb and just feeling excited. Like okay, they're with us. Like we're gonna we're gonna mm-hmm. make it this time. And, you know, of course, you had to kind of go out. Not everybody would recommit. Some people don't even realize that the first product uh, campaign failed. So, you know, you still have to go through the work of, of going after the, you know, the press. And, and we still did all of that work to remind people that, okay, you know, our first campaign failed, but here we are again with the, the second one. And, and it's harder. You have a cha- it's It's a more steep hill to climb, when, especially when you're p- pitching the media, because, you know, if they covered you for the first campaign and you failed, they're probably not going to cover you for the second one unless you've shown something that's, you know, really newsworthy and something that's changed quite a bit from the first one. So luckily, I think, yeah, so I'm just going to say that it was really just this, the, the so luckily we had really enthusiastic backers and that kind of helped us get funded i think the second time around yeah i was gonna ask what did you guys do when you needed to hit the press again because obviously you still had a lot of support from the people that were already backing you the first time uh but now you still of course like you're saying you still have to hit hit the i guess the pr uh process to 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 get that kind of coverage were you approaching the same people same bloggers same reviewers again this time around or did you try to go after others that that didn't cover you the first time we were constantly building our list. Like I used to joke with Brett that, you know, if all else fails, we've built a really robust media list that we yeah. could probably sell and have that be a revenue stream because we really were constantly building this list of, you know, bloggers and their Twitter handles and everything. So we had a really robust list. So, you know, we really did just, you know, I, we, we had a pretty great uh you know, success rate and having people write about us and things like that. But even that success rate was a small percentage of our overall list that we had built. So we just kept, um, Mm. you know, kept emailing, kept tweeting. And, you know, we did have some people that maybe saw us and, and, you know, moved on and then they did cover us the second time around. It wasn't, we weren't as successful the second time around in getting as many of the media um, pitches that we did the first time, but we still did get new ones. And it was just, you know, from it's, it's, it's a numbers game, really, you know, if you send so many emails, you're going to have a success rate, but it does take quite a bit of effort to, to keep, you know, trying to get in there in their forefront. Mm -hmm. So now after you hit the goal this time and you raised the over a hundred thousand dollars, what was the, the next step? What did you need to use the money for? Well, we, uh, that money was, uh, pretty much all used for, for tooling, um, and for development. So I had a, um, I had a contact locally who helped me develop the, uh, the PCB board for our design. 
uh, and and help me get those prototyped. Um, so uh, I was paying him on a uh, on a contract rate um, and, and funding all of the prototypes for that. Uh, then I started working with a manufacturer and making some some molds. Uh, they started off making prototypes, and that process went really slow to start off with. I think until you build up like a reputation with your manufacturer, they <clears throat> kind of take you as a uh, um, lower priority. Mm-hmm. So, so getting the initial prototypes made took a little while, and we started uh, slowly making new molds, and it was a back-and-forth process. Um, we're making our parts in China, which rel- is relatively easy, especially since I have a day job and I get to communicate with uh, China at nighttime. Um, <clears throat> but the, the, the flow of, the, of information back and forth and even the, the flow of parts um, was actually uh, much smoother than I had anticipated. Mm. Um, so, so we worked for a while uh, improving, uh, improving the fits and the snaps and, and everything, and that was a pretty long process doing that. So the tooling, between the tooling and the um, development of the product, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think. I think we used up almost all of the Kickstarter funding um, between those, and 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 I, I can't remember if it paid for the first round of of parts. But we we definitely needed more funding after that. That was not nearly enough to get to get going. I think. Yeah. You know, that's, we made that's, another. We made another twenty thousand dollars in pre-orders after that. Um, but even that was, you know, we were we were needing more money at that point. Wow. So you mentioned, uh, I think, in a pre-interview about how one of the things that you you really figured out how to do was to leverage the support of your Kickstarter backers after the campaign ends to drive reviews and help build momentum and excitement about the product. Now, I think you talked about this between the first campaign and the second campaign, how you were able to keep that momentum going as much as you could. What did you do after the campaign ended the second time to successfully fund the campaign? How did you keep the momentum going and people excited to essentially stick around for the actual, uh, I guess, uh, uh, finished version of the product that could be you know, bought uh, on your site? How did you guys keep the momentum going? I'm not sure yeah. if we really did much. We we made sure that we kept in good standing. I I spent too much I spent too much time uh, on Kickstarter, especially watching the um, the campaigns that like you know go up in flames because they either you know, stop communicating with their backers or are they're two years late on their campaigns. So I, we really wanted to make sure that we stayed in good standing. Um, with our backers, both in both good and bad updates. So we made sure, I think Jen was really the one who kept us on track there, making sure that we had an update uh, at least monthly, if not more, to our backers. Um, yeah. There, and besides, luckily, you know, yeah. I think most, we were, I really was pleasantly surprised in the type of, of, you know, custom or the type of backer that backs projects on Kickstarters. I found that, you know, overall, the majority of backers really understand the spirit of Kickstarter. They understand mm-hmm. that that it's rare that products meet their um, production schedule, even though, you know, everyone goes in with the best of, of intentions. There is, you know, a small but vocal group that doesn't really understand the spirit of Kickstarter, and they just understand that they paid for a product, and it's been, you know, 60 days since it was supposed to be delivered, and they're, you know, angry. But for the most part, the it I found it to be a very um, positive, nurturing group of people that really want you to succeed. And so that was, you know, kind of 
um, you know, that gave us a lot of, it gave me personally just a lot of, um, you know, excitement because I used to dread having to give, you know, updates where we'd say that we were, you know, behind again for four mm-hmm. weeks or, you know, however it was. But for the most part, people really did understand and they wanted you to take the time necessary to, um, you know, perfect the product. And, and when we did deliver a product, everybody w- was really satisfied and super happy. We got so many comments saying that, you know, they were so glad we t- took our time. And, and, you know, we were, I think, how many months did we end up behind, Brett? It was like... I think it was about five, yeah, four or five months behind. Yeah. And so, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, I think it's on average, I I think it's like 85% of projects are at least that late on Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. You know, you, every, every creator goes in with sort of like a naive optimism that they can do it. And then you run into all of these roadblocks. But I think because we had really good communication with our backers and we ended up delivering a really great product. They were excited for us and excited to be in at the ground floor. And, you know, we tried to do little things for them here and there. Like, for instance, on our packaging, our first round of packaging on the back in big letters, you know, it was like this was brought to you through the support of 2,600 backers on Kickstarter. Thank you, backers. You know, like we always tried to kind of make them feel that we will always remember our roots of, of how they made it happen for us. Um, and, and also too, we sort of tried to give, we, we decided internally that, you know, because, uh, for instance, the Apple TV product, um, came out with a new device and we had backers that kind of wanted to be able to have a, have a version for their new upgraded Apple four, um, product that they had when they pledged and we costed everything just solely based on the Apple three model. So we kind of made a decision um, internally, which I think was a really great decision that we made that we decided that we were going to offer all of our backers a free um, adapter clip for the new um, Apple TV four. Once we had that developed and they would just have to pay, you know, a small shipping fee for that. And, but that way that would, because it's a modular design now, it allows them to upgrade their side click their mm. new Apple four and so, you know, it did cost us some money to do that. However, by making a large group of people happy, you know, when we sort of announced that product or when we announced that offer to them was the same uh, time that we asked them to help us um, with our reviews on Best Buy because we had just started our, our relationship with BestBuy.com. And we had a really big response from our Kickstarter uh backers, like many of them, you know, went, many of them, you know, went ahead and filled out the paperwork and got their free adapter clip. And many of them went to Best Buy and reviewed our products. And and we had a really good, you know, our our merchant um, team over at Best Buy was really excited at the reviews that were coming in. And so that was kind of like a really great leveraging of our supporters from the beginning and they were helping us grow. Yeah, so you're essentially giving out uh, like free samples to uh, to your your most dedicated customers, and they paid you guys back. Uh, it sounds like much much more than than you would have would have even wanted by writing all these these reviews for you, which then helps you know bolster your relationship with Best Buy, and then of course drives more people to to purchase. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that you guys were selling or working with Best Buy, d- the website. Are you also in the retail store or was, was this deal uh, specifically for, for the, the dot-com? We're actually in, yeah, we're in the stores uh, as of uh, about 
two weeks ago. Nice. So how did that? How did that get? Uh, I guess it rains. How did you? Uh, did you have to work with a buyer to get into a place like Best Buy? We went to. I was somewhat reluctant, and Jen kind of talked us into going to the Consumer Electronics Show, which was in. It's in January every year, mm-hmm. um, in Vegas. We went in January of 2016. Um, there's a there's like four different um, uh, four different venues or four or five different venues out there, and one of them they call Eureka Park, uh, which is for startups. I think you have to meet a certain criteria in order to display there, and and they have lower costs uh, for renting the booth and uh, and give you some you know some additional perks. So we set up a booth there and uh, went out not really knowing what to expect. Um, and, and through those, uh, I don't know, four or five grueling days of, uh, standing on our feet and talking to hundreds of people a day, we met contacts for, um, all of the major retailers, a bunch of smaller websites, talked to a lot of individuals who were just interested, talked to some media. Um, but one of the, uh, uh, one of the people who came to visit us was a, um, a sales rep who's out in Minnesota who reps for both, uh, Target and Best Buy. And and started our relationship from that point on, and it took it took a while. I mean, we just got in the stores. I think we were up on BestBuy.com uh, probably like in July. July. So even to get to that point took almost six months. Yeah. So we had we sort of started slowly with them. It was kind of like you know we started as soon as we had order because when we first went to the consumer electronics store, we didn't even have any product yet. We were still. You know, even we we were at that point, we even had like a big PCB problem and we were having to kind of start over uh, with our uh, electronics components sourcing. And so it, things were not, you know, cemented and we, we didn't have orders that we could, you know, make on the spot, which was kind of like everyone in that Eureka Park um, section. But, you know, as soon as we got our products in, we sort of started with bestbuy.com and we were told that, you know, we needed to kind of meet a certain metric of sales per week. Um, on their dot com before they would entertain, um, you know, placing us in the store, and we and so it was it was constantly sort of meeting little um, milestones with them, and then um, once we met those milestones, it was then the conversations of being put into the store happened, and it's 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 just working with a big box retailer as well is is like it's learning a new language. You know, there's so many requirements. And if you're not from the retail um, industry or space, it's, it really, I really do describe it as you kind of have to learn to speak a whole new language. There's, there's just different criteria and different steps that you have to go through to get, um, you know, involved with a big box store like Best Buy. So, and, and all of those things are very, um, they take a lot of time. So mm-hmm. we, we re- and you know, our, we got really lucky because we have met a really great team of sales reps that their specialty is they have the relationships already. So, um, I feel really good that, that, you know, they're sort of our face to face. They're, they're located where, you know, the merchant team is located and they're sort of helping us navigate the process. But at the end of the day, it just, it takes a long time. Mm. So can you maybe go into some details about some of these steps or milestones that that might trip other entrepreneurs up or something to look out for if you are working with a big box retailer? What are some things that were maybe uh, challenges that were were more difficult than others to to get through? 
Well, I think one of the things, and, and Brett, you can kind of speak to it from maybe uh, your more technical side too. But for for me, I think what what uh, entrepreneurs need to know when they work with Best Box uh, with big box stores is that you need to expect to spend a lot of money with them before you're going to um, start seeing any money back. And kind of what I mean by that is, you know, it starts with things like um, insurance requirements. You know, their insurance requirements uh, caused us to need to up our insurance. So that's several more thousand dollars that we need to spend in insurance to be um, a vendor with them. Um, also, there's something called like data pool synchronization, where you are inputting your SKUs and all of your um, product information that you have from like your GS1 into something called a data pool. Um, and they subscribe to the data pool, and it's just how the information is exchanged from the vendor to the store, and you also have to pay for a subscription to the data pool, which is also several thousand dollars. Um, then there is a EDI, which is how they submit purchase orders back and forth, and uh, accounts receivables and accounts payables information. That is a, that is a subscription service that you have to pay for. Um, also, which is quite, um, interesting and frustrating is that in order to see your daily sales reporting, um, you have to pay and subscribe to a, uh, metrics and reporting report. Mm, Um, so it, there is a lot of costs associiated. And so you really, it's risky, you know, because if you you have to pay for all this before you ever see a dime. That's that's yeah. the hardest part. Did you have anybody yeah. that that was helping that was helping you out along this process, or were you just working directly with Best Buy and then every week you were like, "Wow, this is another bill we have to pay." Did, did anyone kind of eventually come along and show you the way? Our sales reps did a really good job of of pushing us along because I have to say, if we didn't have the sales reps that constantly were sort of like, "Listen, you know, we, the, this is the the sky's the limit. We're going to do well. This is you know." They kind of needed to push us along, but but even with them pushing us along and their expertise in dealing with other customers, it, it's a lot. Of, you really, at the end of the day, you're the one that's figuring out the data pool. When I've never had any experience with any sort of data information and things like that, so you really are learning a new language, and um, you just have. There's many days where I felt like all I did all day was was pay money to Best Buy or go through some step that I just wasn't confident that I knew what I was doing. But now that I've gotten past that um, and we're starting to see like our receivables grow, um, it, it definitely feels worth it. But mm. but really, that could be a big barrier for a company not knowing how labor intensive it is to work with a big retailer and how expensive it is because you know we have ninety day payment terms. So all of that that was, you know, all of that money that we were having to pay for the services like that I described, that was months ago before we even had product, before we even, we were months away from getting our first purchase order. And then once we get a purchase order, it's 90 days. So it's, it's, it's quite a lot of cash up front. Mm -hmm. So uh, lots of uh, long-term projects for you guys, it seems with this uh, working at Best Buy and then the two Kickstarter campaigns that you had to launch. Now, one thing you mentioned in the pre-interview was about how you guys have both learned how to properly build a project schedule and timeline these days. So tell us a bit more about this. Like, how do you even begin to approach a, a large project these days? I think I've only learned by making mistakes originally. Um, 
I think uh, I, I think I could help someone build a better project schedule, but I, I miss the mark a lot. Um, you know, I, I think uh, you, you forget about certain things like um, <clears throat> ocean freight from China, depending on where your uh, warehouse is, can be anywhere from you know th- three weeks to five weeks. Um, that that I just completely kind of left off uh, our schedule. Um, the back and forth of making. Every time I, I thought we could make iterations on our design and our molds relatively quickly. However, they have to put the machine, you know, the, the machine that they modify or machine the parts to is, is a completely different machine than what shoots the plastic parts, the in, injection molding machine. So they have to take that off and then get it in queue to do machining and then put it back on. And, and every time you do that, you're getting charged and it's another week. And we went back and forth because... I, being somewhat of a perfectionist, I wanted the snaps to be perfect, you know, and I, I, I wanted everything to be perfect. And at a certain point, um, you know, I think we just made the decision saying, you know, every, everyone's going to be happy that they got this product. We could continue to improve things, but we're at a point where we're ready to launch and we have to, we can't waste right. any more time. I, Mark, I was watching Shark Tank and Mark Cuban once said that perfection is the death of profitability. And mm. so I would have to remind Brett of that you know, sometimes that, yes, we want to deliver a great product, but we can't do it, you know, um, at the sake of our company's ultimate success. Mm, make, that makes sense. Can you say a little more about this? I think there's a, a, a state that a lot of entrepreneurs get caught up in where they want to make the product they're working on perfect before they launch or make the site perfect before they launch or make the Kickstarter campaign page perfect before they, they decide to launch it. How do you recognize when it's good enough, I guess, to, to go live? I, I think you have to do proper testing. Um, you have to make sure that it holds up to the claims. I mean, as far as this goes, we we actually something I didn't even breach yet. We we um, I, I ended up one of the reasons we had our major delay in our product being delivered is I had a PCB made, the one that I had designed locally that um, that was unreliable, and we had problems. And I didn't even know that until we had made almost uh, three thousand of them. Um, so. This I got this news. I got samples and and um, had issues. I think I, I, I had gone to China for the first time to meet with our plastic supplier, our electronic supplier. Um, I tested some out, approved them. We had like three thousand made, and I got samples right before we went to the CES show uh, in January, and and none of them worked properly. Wow. So um, so it was very stressful. I, that was something. <laughs> so. That was, yeah, exactly. That was an example of something that was um, inexcusable. I mean, that would... Yeah, that and would obviously have, you cannot move forward with a product that doesn't mm-hmm. work. That would have put, a, put us out of business. You know, having 50% of the people who get our product have trouble programming the remote would have been devastating, right? But, but maybe one... We, we were compatible with, uh, at this point, I believe it's nine different streaming device remotes, um, having one clip that fit a little looser than the other eight is something that I just had to deal with. We had already done two revisions on it. Every revision was costing me two to three weeks. Um, and it was good. It just wasn't perfect. So it, you really had to weigh out the consequence. Um, a loose clip might get us a, a, you know, maybe one or two lower reviews where a bad electronics board would have crippled us. So, um, you know, they, we, we had a really good manufacturer. They 
they worked out a lot of the problems internally. They worked out any flaws in the design. They tweak, helped tweak stuff to make it better, um, more manufacturable. And, and we got to a point pretty quickly where we were very happy with the product, something that I would be proud to put our name on and also something that we've had. And I've talked to some friends who have the same thing, who have had some of the original models that have been out for like two years now, and they still, same, same set of batteries, and they've always been attached to the remote, and it's been two years, and they have no problems with them. I guess it's been about a year, year, year and a half, maybe. So that that's really it's really just use and and proper testing and. And I think no, that we sort of complement each other too, because Brett is more of a perfectionist, and I tend to want to like push a little bit. So mm-hmm. I think that we kind of complement each other, just and I can kind of remind him that this is an area that we can. Um, perfect as we go down the line, but we can't afford any more holdups. Um, you know, so we, we constantly sort of weigh, weigh the pros and the cons with adding more time versus, um, you know, tweaking a product. But, but I think we have sort of learned that sometimes you just have to go or someone else will. Yeah. I think that, that, uh, that, work with a co-founder that can balance you guys is very important. The last thing you want is two perfectionists or two people that are ready to ship things right away, both working on the same team because you don't have that kind of balance. I think that that definitely works well for the both of you. So, you know, thank you so much for your time, Jen and Brett. So sideclickremotes.com, again, is the website that is the, is the store. Anywhere else you recommend listeners check out they want to follow along with any new products that you guys are coming out with? Yeah, we always launch them on our website first, and that's, like you said, cyclicremotes.com. Um, we try to get everything up on Amazon as quickly as possible. We're releasing a new model right now for a new streaming device called the Mi Box, and, and we're going to get that up on Amazon soon. We're already selling them on our website. So um, Jen does a really good job at keeping, uh, keeping our backers uh, uh, up to date. So yeah, and we're also on Twitter and Facebook, so you can find us uh, at sideclickremotes. Awesome. Yeah, we'll link all that in the show notes. Again, thank you so much. Thank Thanks you a lot very for having much. us, Felix. Nice talking to you. Here's a sneak peek of what's in store for the next Shopify Masters episode. Creating affiliates through people that have organizations and have followings online um, it makes things a lot easier. Instead of actually having tangible people on the ground trying to move your product around their gym or whatever it may be. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.